Welcome to the Come Follow Me podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, featuring BYU devotionals and forums specially curated to accompany your weekly Come Follow Me studies. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. I really don't want to apologize for being here, but I apologize in the sense that you are traditionally used to a general authority. You will understand, however, that it is General Conference Week and a very busy time and with a lot of talks coming up, and so you do not have a general authority. In me, you do not even have a specific authority. Uh, In me, you don't even have any authority at all. Uh, So I hope that uh, you'll indulge and and the Lord will provide. I feel a little bit like the politician who, after his fact-filled address, asked if there were any questions, and there was only one. Yes, who else is running? Uh, Tonight, no one else is running, and I pray that you don't. Uh, I'm deeply grateful for your attendance. I realize that you've been in meetings since 6 o'clock this morning. Somebody said the definition of a Mormon is one planning for going to, sitting in, reviewing, or coming from a meeting. (laughs) And it is really about that that I want to speak tonight, but I really have no illusions about why you're here, except perhaps in the case of the missionaries. I exclude them. But for the rest of you, don't kid me. I I know why you're here. I I didn't just fall off the turnip truck, you know. (laughs) I see you. I see you out there. You haven't looked up here once. Your, your, your vision is all horizontal, lateral. I, I, I can hear it, like on the great eternal sound system, thinking as you are, fellows. She is here. <laughs> she said she might not come, and she's here. I think a strategically placed walk to the water fountain would do it. She's saying, oh, he's here, he's here. But he's with her. (laughs) I guess you know that BYU is the only place in the church from which the brethren repeatedly get requests to hold Relief Society and Priesthood meeting together. I know, I know your type. I went to this school. I'll tell my only, I'll tell my only marriage story that I know and get it right on with this. It's, it's really President Tanner's story, but it's about the very shy, reticent young man who dated this girl and it was at this very school, for quite a while, through a mission and most of an educational career, and and wasn't given to a lot of talk anyway, which is one of the things that bothered her. And finally, one night, he just sort of summoned the supreme, ultimate courage and said this one line, Will you marry me? Well, she just exploded. Oh, yes, 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 yes. And she was, uh, uh, <laughs> and she said, oh, uh, wh- where should we have the reception? And uh, what, what colors, kid, do you think will be best for the bridesmaids? And, uh, well, what about the open house? And we ought to call mother. And she just went on and on and on, I suppose, 30 minutes and didn't take a breath. He just sat there in his silent, eloquent way. And she finally realized that she'd sort of capitalized and monopolized, and she said, Oh, sweetheart, I'm so sorry. Say something. Say something. Don't, don't let me uh, capture all of the splendor of this moment. <laughs> to which, after something of a silence, he said, I think I've said too much already. <laughs> well... I hope the missionaries didn't clap or laugh at that. (laughs) It's a great thing. It's a great thing to belong to a church that brings us together. I have worried about and prayed about and struggled over the message that I might give to you tonight, and I'm giving the message that I feel I should. 
It is not a message that I would traditionally give, but through the blessing and luck of the calendar, it may be the kind of message that I would not really have the opportunity to give you ever again, so appropriately. You do not have a general authority here tonight at this pulpit because of general conference, and it is about general conference that I wish to speak. It is also about general conferences, not unlike that in which you now gather, that I also wish to speak. And that's why I say it's great to belong to a church that brings us together. I think it's marvelous on your part, it's surely marvelous for me, that you would come here tonight saying something about your faith and your desire to hear the word of the Lord. Quote, see that the church meet together often. Close quote. The Lord directs the priesthood. Later in the 20th section, quote, it is expedient that the church meet together often. Same counsel to the Nephites, the Lord speaking in the 18th chapter, you'll remember. But uh, let me specifically suggest why it seems to me the Lord asks us to come together, specifically a general conference about which I wish to say more, but in part uh, firesides and uh, sacrament meetings and family home evenings and prayer and other kinds of conferences that we hold before the Lord. Now behold, I'm reading from section 43. This is a very, very rich period of church history. It is a 45 or 60 day period in which the blessings of the Lord and the literal revelations of God are pouring out. You will note from the sequence of sections that within this 30, 40 day period, we have received a section like section 42, containing the law of the church, section 46, enumerating the gifts of the Spirit, and so on and so forth. I quote from section 43. Now behold, I give unto you a commandment that when you are assembled together, you shall instruct and edify each other, that you may know how to act and direct my church, how to act upon the points of my law and commandments which I have given. And thus you shall become instructed in the law of my church and be sanctified by that which you have received, and you shall bind yourselves to act in all holiness before me, and you are to be taught from on high. Sanctify yourselves and be endowed with power. Administratively, ecclesiastically, in terms of priesthood power, it seems to me that is a marvelous description of what is supposed to happen when we come together. Instruction, edification, specifically sanctification that we may bind ourselves to act in all holiness before me. Now, I assume that binding may have a couple of meanings. It surely means to bind ourselves to Him, that we come together under covenant. The church is called to meet together, those who are under covenant. But I suspect it also means that we bind ourselves together collectively to act before God as a church ought to act and to administer in the affairs of His law to see that the church is what the church is supposed to be, to in fact see that the kingdom comes. Now that's part of what we do, I think, when we get together and participate in that kind of binding. One last verse, and then I leave this for the discussion. And that is almost the last line that Moroni gives about the church in this hemisphere before the close of his book. And I extract just two verses from the sixth chapter of Moroni. After they had been received unto baptism and were wrought upon and cleansed by the power of the Holy Ghost, that's an interesting line about how you're really finally cleansed when the water is over. After they'd been received unto baptism and were wrought upon and cleansed by the power of the Holy Ghost, they were numbered among the people of the Church of Christ, and their names were taken that they might be remembered and nourished by the good word of God to keep them in the right way to keep them continually watchful unto prayer, relying wholly upon the merits of Christ, who was the author and the finisher of their faith. And the church did meet together oft to fast and to pray and to speak one with another concerning the welfare of their souls. And they did meet together oft to partake of the bread and the wine in remembrance of the Lord Jesus. And they were strict to observe that there should be no iniquity among them. 
Uh, I suppose if there's a branch president or a high counselor or an elders quorum president or a visiting teacher in the room who wants to know what it is that the church is supposed to do when we get together, even if it's only one-on-one -on -one in an apartment, even if it's only in a home evening group or, a, or an opportunity to pray together, it may be something to do with remembering each other. We all count. Everyone exists. We've got a name before God and it's recorded and we need to remember that here. Nobody gets lost. Their names were taken that they might be remembered and nourished by the good word of God. Prayer, relying on the merit of Christ, fasting, speaking concerning the welfare of their souls. What a great line about, about what a meeting is supposed to do, what a, what a Sunday school class can be, what a, what a discussion about a scripture in an apartment can be, to discuss the welfare of their souls and to see, as he concludes, that there's no iniquity among us. Well, we've been having conferences and meetings of that kind for a long, long time. I don't know when the first was held. In a very private sense, I suppose it was held in the garden and out. But publicly, in any sense that we could talk about a general conference, I suppose the, f the first is the one described in section 107. You will recall that that is the moment where Adam calls together his posterity in the valley of Adam on Diamond and there prophesies to the very last generation of his family about what would befall his people. And it says the Lord did visit them and they did rise up and bless Adam and call him Michael. Whatever tradition that began, it's continued ever since. You know, you know Mosiah, the introductory chapters. I heard Bishop Featherstone at this pulpit say that he thought that was perhaps the second greatest sermon ever given. It surely competes in that kind of category. King Benjamin's sermon in which he had to pull people together in such a crowd that they could not all see him or hear him. He had to build a tower and distribute a multilift text of his talk. It was the first example of the conference report, I suppose. It is, uh, that's part of the reason that we have the end sign in the bookstore every, uh, what, May now and November. It's a religious text. Like King Benjamin, President Kimball wants the text to be heard and to be read. And if we're not all able to crowd into the tabernacle, as King Benjamin's people were not, then it is important that they see and hear and read as much as we can. And that becomes scripture to us in our own day. Christ on both continents held those kinds of conferences on mountaintops, by the seashore, in a boat, in an upper room. He held them almost anywhere and, uh, and everywhere because the people hungered and thirsted for the kind of message that can be heard when the voice of the Lord is uttered. How, uh, how hungry and thirsty are we? Let me read you one general conference address, or at least the conclusion of it, from the 17th chapter of 3rd Nephi. Go into your homes and ponder the things which I have said. This is the Savior speaking. He's just had a general conference with them. I perceive that you are weak and that you cannot understand all my words which I am commanded of the Father to speak unto you at this time. I go now unto the Father and also to show myself unto the lost tribes of Israel. For they are not lost unto the Father, for he knoweth whither he hath taken them. And then this beautiful, sensitive, always touching line for me, like this hymn that was sung. It came to pass that when Jesus had thus spoken, saying that he's about to leave, right? He's going to go to the Father and visit the ten tribes. It came to pass that when Jesus had thus spoken, he cast his eyes round about again on the multitude and beheld they were in tears and did look steadfastly upon him as if they would ask him to tarry a little longer with them. So sensitive and, and appreciative and, and, and apparently no one's saying anything. No one says, won't you stay? We're not tired. Uh, we haven't even noticed that we haven't eaten all day. Won't you stay? They say it with their eyes and with their spirit. And he said unto them, Behold, I am filled with compassion toward you. Have you any that are sick among you? And they did all, they that had been healed, and they who were whole bowed down at his feet and did worship him. And as many as could come for the multitude did kiss his feet, insomuch that they did bathe his feet with their tears. And it came to pass that he 
commanded that their little children should be brought to them. And he wept, and he took their little children one by one and blessed them and prayed unto the Father for them. And when he had done this, he wept again, and he said, Behold your little ones. If there's a more touching scene in all Scripture anywhere, I don't know where it is. Because somebody cared enough to want to attend that kind of a conference. I don't know whether anybody stayed home that day. I don't know whether anybody thought there was a ball game on or the gardening needed done or some very legitimate work in the basement. But if anybody stayed home from the general conference that is just concluding in 3 Nephi 17, I can promise you that they must have surely missed what has to be for me one of the greatest moments ever recorded in any scripture anywhere. I don't know what it's like to hear the Savior pray. He himself knelt upon the earth, and behold, he prayed unto the Father, and the things which he prayed cannot be written. And the multitude did hear and bear record. And the eye hath never seen, neither hath the ear ever heard, so great and marvelous things as we saw. That's interesting. Do you see a prayer? As we saw and heard Jesus speak unto the Father. What did they see? I don't know what they saw. It cannot be written. But no one has ever been able to record what this group both saw and heard Jesus speak unto the Father. Uh, no basement, no garden, no ball game was worth missing that. And I don't know any more about it than what I read here, but I'm confident that that's the truth. The early church continued with its general conferences. You'll remember in the first book of Acts that Peter called the church together. The figure that's given is 120. That's interesting. I've wondered whether that meant some sort of conference by invitation or whether it meant that the antagonism and the antipathy and the emotion of what had just been experienced, both in terms of Roman persecution and Jewish persecution and the death of the Savior, I wonder if that meant that we now have a church of 120. Remember the 5,000 that met out on the hill? 7,000 on one occasion? 3,000 frequently? And now we've got 120. I don't know whether that's the full church or not, but it is at least a general conference of some sort in which Peter, as the presiding officer of the church, calls the saints together and, and says that they have to fill the quorum and go on with the work of the Lord, which, of course, they do in a dramatic and impressive way. But uh, all of that is only to suggest that we come down in our own day to a marvelous tradition of a church which gets together by commandment to hear the word of the Lord, to continue the work of Adam and of King Benjamin and of Christ and of Peter after him. And now we meet at the feet of President Spencer W. Kimball, whom I testify with all my heart, who is a prophet. And whatever else I may choose to say at the conclusion of this talk, I need you to know now at the outset that I believe that with all my heart. I know it to be true, and it is a statement about what this church is destined to be. The practice of holding a church conference in our dispensation was officially initiated on April 6, 1830, the same day that the church was organized. At that time, this very small congregation was called upon to ratify something called, as a brief document, called the Articles and Covenants of the Church. It stipulated, and I quote, that the several elders composing this Church of Christ are to meet in conference once in three months or from time to time, as said conferences shall direct or appoint. And said conferences are to do whatever church business is necessary to be done at that time. It shall be the duty of the several churches composing the Church of Christ to send one or more of their teachers to attend the several conferences held by the elders of the Church. Some of you will recognize that that's taken from the text of Doctrine and Covenants, section 20. Pursuant to that instruction given by the Lord the day the Church was organized, the first conference thereafter was held as directed three months later. On June 9, 1830, in the Peter Whitmer Senior Home of Fayette County, New York, Seneca County, New York, approximately 30 members assembled in this very small home, which I hope you've had a chance to visit. And according to the minutes which were taken by Oliver Cowdery, Joseph Smith, Jr. read the 14th chapter of Ezekiel and then offered prayer. If I were to call for a vote, how many of you could tell me what is contained in the 14th chapter of Ezekiel? Uh, that's an interesting text. 
<laughs> I don't see a lot of takers. Uh, that's an interesting text for the first conference of the church. I would not have known, quite frankly, by chapter, what specifically was in the 14th chapter until I reviewed this history and read it again. And may I invite you to do so, and then may I invite you to compare it with the first section of the Doctrine and Covenants, which, as you know, is called the Preface to the Dispensation. Would you see if there is any kind of theme in Ezekiel 14 which would tie up with DNC 1, which, of course, is not yet given? We do not have a first section to the Doctrine and Covenants yet. And I think that may say something about the first and greatest commandment ever given to man and which is reiterated in every dispensation. I leave with you the invitation to read Ezekiel 14 and DNC 1. Joseph Smith, in his own minutes, in his own diary, supplemented the minutes of Oliver Cowdery and documented that they sang a song and partook of the sacrament and then received by unanimous voice the articles and covenants of the Church. Oliver Cowdery ordained Samuel Smith an elder, and Joseph Smith and Hiram were ordained priests. Joseph Smith, Sr. and Hiram were ordained priests. At this conference, quote, I quote from the Times and Seasons, much exhortation and instruction was given, and the Holy Ghost was poured out upon us in a miraculous manner. Many of our number prophesied, whilst others had the heavens open to their view. The goodness and the condescension of a merciful God unto such as obeying the everlasting gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ combined to create within us a sensation of rapturous gratitude and inspire us with fresh zeal and energy in the cause of truth. If there has ever been given a line about the purpose of a general conference of the Church or a state conference of the Church or a sacrament meeting of the Church, it may well be that it combined to create within us a sensation of rapturous gratitude and inspire us with fresh zeal and energy in the cause of truth. Fourteen years later, John Taylor, soon to be the president of the Church, said of this experience, a few men assembled in a log cabin that day. They saw visions of heaven and gazed upon the eternal world. They looked through the rent vista of futurity and beheld the glories of eternity. They were laying the foundation for the salvation of this world. Sidney Rigdon, who was there but who was uh, later to have difficulties of his own, said 14 years ago, we knew that the Church would become as large as it is today. We are as big then as we ever we were, we are as big then as we ever shall be. We began to talk like men in authority and power. If we did not see these very people who 14 years later were before them, we saw in vision the church of God a thousand times larger than it was. Although we were then not enough to well man a farm. All the elders, all the members met in conference in a room 20 feet square. We talked. Oh, we talked about people coming as doves to the windows and nations should flock unto us. We talk such big things that most men could not bear them. Take the chance, if you can, to be in Salt Lake this next weekend. Ask yourself if the doves are flocking to the windows, and if from every nation there are not those representatives of the Church and Kingdom of God coming. Whatever talk uh, Oliver and Sidney and the Prophet Joseph and the Whitmers had, however big it must have seemed to them to all twenty in attendance, I suppose even now could they have seen it they would not perhaps have imagined what salvation of men they were in fact initiating. From that day to this, general conferences have been held under the commandment of God and have provided us with opportunities to note our growth and to reassess our faith and to recommit our efforts. I noticed something uh, last night in the Church News. I hope you read the Church News. These are the opening lines of page 1. The purpose of General Conference, according to President Spencer W. Kimball, is to, quote, refresh our faith, strengthen our testimonies, and learn the ways of the Lord from His duly appointed and authorized servants. With the opening of the 146th semi-annual General Conference of the Church on October 1st in the Tabernacle on Temple Square, members of the Church in many parts of the world will have a chance to be refreshed, strengthened, and taught. For me, President Kimball said, conference is really a happy time 
I have always enjoyed conference. I always come away from conference with a new resolve that I will do better. President Kimball, leaving conference, committed to do better. How does that make the rest of us feel? I suspect that you and I can profit from that kind of commitment to the event that is about to take place. Because it seems to me that institutionally, dramatically, and now in terms of worldwide communication, I suppose universally, we are allowed to see that which is the lifeblood of this church. Now, if you had to suggest what is the very keystone of our religion, Joseph Smith once said that the Book of Mormon is the keystone of our religion. Why is the Book of Mormon the keystone of our religion? What is the Book of Mormon? What was it first and foremost before anything else happened in this world, at least in terms of the dispensation that we now know to guide and direct this world? What is it? Whatever else it is, it is a revelation. It is a revelation about revelation. It is the basic document by which the, we would testify to the world with a copy in our hands that the heavens are opened and that God lives and that He speaks and that Jesus is the Christ. That is the message of revelation. But the process by which that, that message comes is revelation. And Joseph Smith taught that that is the characteristic of this church by which the church will always be known and recognized. And this weekend we have what, for me at least, is the most majestic example. Surely in terms of numbers and impact and scope and concentration and power and priesthood, it is the most majestic example we have of the fact that God does live, Jesus is the Christ, the heavens are open, there are living prophets because they're gathered in the tabernacle and they're on television. And people can see them and hear them and respond to that testimony if they will. I do not minimize the revelations that come privately. I do not minimize in any sense, as you would know, the revelation that comes to a stake president or to a bishop or to an elders quorum president or to a father. But I am saying that simply as a declaration to this world that the heavens are open, we are about to see the classic example of that. And we get to see it at least twice a year. I quote Joseph Smith. Salvation cannot come without revelation. It is vain for anyone to minister without it. The plea of many in this day is that we have no right to receive revelations. But if we do not get revelations, then we do not have oracles of God. And if we do not have oracles of God, then we are not the people of God. Well, we're the people of God because we have oracles who receive revelation. We cannot, with impunity, act like this is any other weekend. It is not. It never has been. It never will be. It is the most dramatic moment in any six-month period wherein the power and the ability and the voice of the Lord is made manifest to the inhabitants of this earth. And that includes the students at Brigham Young University. I have here a sheaf of, uh, of quotes which I will not read, but I'd like to read you two. One from John Taylor. It's about the role of a prophet in this church, that thing by which this church is known. See, we go, we dress up a lot of young men and some women in white shirts and blouses and some narrow ties and send them all over the world. And what is the message? What is the message? The, the basic message is that Jesus is the Christ. But sometimes people don't hear that. A lot of other people are saying it. A lot of other people who say it don't know what we mean when we say it, but a lot of other people are saying it. We teach that God lives and that Jesus is literally His Son, but some other people teach that, and we don't always get their attention. And there is a, there is a sort of fight for the audience which allows us to have the time and the moment and the Spirit to say to somebody why we know that Jesus is the Christ and why we know that God lives. And most of the time, the thing that we will have to use to get an opportunity to declare those great truths is to say that the reason we know it is that they have appeared to a prophet in this day. Now that is something that other people cannot say. And that's what we need to be able to say and must say and must be part of our testimony. John Taylor. We require a living tree, a living fountain, 
living intelligence proceeding from the living priesthood in heaven through the living priesthood on earth. And from the time that Adam first received a communication from God to the time that John on the Isle of Patmos received his communication or Joseph Smith that the heavens were open to him, it has always required new revelations adapted to the peculiar circumstances in which the churches or individuals were placed. Adam's revelation did not instruct Noah to build an ark, nor did Noah's revelation tell Lot to forsake Sodom, nor did either of these speak to the departure of the children of Israel from Egypt. These all had revelations for themselves, and so did Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Jesus, Peter, Paul, John, and Joseph. And so must we, or we shall make a shipwreck. President Harold B. Lee's last conference. I remember this as vividly as if it were yesterday. I loved it when President Lee used to lean across the pulpit and sort of slide the text aside and uh, look at the people in the audience, and this is what he said on his last living conference. Now, you Latter-day Saints, I think you've never attended a conference where in these three days you have heard more inspired declarations on most every subject and problem about which the world is worrying. If you want to know what the Lord would have the Saints know and to have His guidance and direction for the next six months, get a copy of the proceedings of this conference, and you'll have the latest word of the Lord as far as the Saints are concerned, and also all others who are not with us and who are not of us, but who believe what has been said that this has been the mind of the Lord, the will of the Lord, and the voice of the Lord, and the power of God unto salvation. And within three months, President Lee was gone. Conference uh, can do a great deal to caution us if we need cautioning. I'm reminded of one general conference that was not uh, as pleasant as some we've described, but that too can be one of the purposes of general conference. This is what the Lord said about Ahab. It is not the kind of thing that I personally would want to have put in my treasures of truth, but this is what it said. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. And Ahab made a grove, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. That's not a great thing to have said about you, but I suppose if you need something, uh, that's, uh, that's one thing, at least. <laughs> You'll recall the story that Elijah comes under the direction of the Lord and calls down a famine, a drought, in which there is no bread or water, and everyone is thirsty or hungry. And then after about three years, the Lord calls Elijah out of the mountains, where he has been fed by ravens and uh, has drunk water at the brook Cherith. He comes down out of the mountain and faces Ahab. And Ahab walks up and says, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? See, it hasn't been a great three years for Elijah either. I don't know what ravens bring this season, but it's, it's, not, a, it's not a heavy menu. And, uh, you know, and so here he stands in his, uh, in his robe, and, uh, and Elijah said, Are you the one that's been causing all this trouble? And Elijah confesses that, in fact, uh, under the, in the name of the Lord, he has been. And he said, I'd like to call a general conference. He doesn't exactly say that, but sort of. He says, Now therefore send and gather unto me all Israel unto Mount Carmel, and also call the, the prophets of Baal, 450. I've got a general conference address I want to give. Let them, that is the priests of Baal, let them give us two bullock, and let them choose one for themselves and cut it in pieces, and lay it on wood, and put no fire under it. And I'll dress the other bullock, and lay it under wood, and put no fire under it. And you call on the name of your gods, and I'll call on the name of the Lord. And the God that answereth by fire, let him be God. And all the people answered and said, It is well spoken. You can just hear that murmur, their response right out of the tabernacle, can't you? They took the bullock which was given them, that is, the priests of Baal, and they dressed it and called on the name of Baal from morning even until noon. They probably started as early as possible, which would be 6 o'clock. They called on the name of Baal from morning even until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But alas, there is no answer, <laughs> nor any that answered, nor any voice. And they leaped upon the altar which was made. They're getting a little nervous by about noon, and they're sort of <laughs> leaping around and crashing into the altar a little bit. It was a lot more formal than that about 8 o'clock in the morning. But uh, the pressure's on. 
Now, at this point, Elijah removes himself slightly from the traditional prophetic role. I'm, uh, by and large, prophets do not sort of make fun of other people. But like I say, this has not been a pleasant three years for him either. <laughs> and so, at about noon, when, when everybody's getting nervous and sort of crashing into the altar here as they do this chant, Elijah is over here resting, has a chase lounge nearby. <laughs> just why? He's just been watching. He, he, he is, he is not, it is not his turn yet. And this is what it says in verse 27. It came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them. That's why I say it is not the traditional prophetic role. But it's sort of the 10th century B.C. equivalent of... Yeah, eh, eh, eh. <laughs> It came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry louder. <laughs> the problem, obviously, is volume. You've, you've, <laughs> you've got to uh, get up there with this message. Cry louder for sure. He is a god. There is, there's no question about that. Perhaps he's talking. You know, been in a long conversation. His wife's worried about the petunias. And, and uh, perhaps he's talking. Or perhaps he's pursuing. He's in the basement uh, woodworking, and they don't have a phone there. <laughs> or perhaps he's on a journey. Or peradventure he sleepeth and must be awakened. There is some good reason, and I'm sure volume's the answer. Cry louder. <laughs> the, 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 the sort of fun thing is, the next line is, they cried louder. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, they'll take advice from any source uh, at this moment because it's noon and cut themselves after their manner with knives and lances till the blood gushed out upon them. You can tell they're really nervous now. This isn't just sort of running into the altar. This is sort of serious business, uh, bleeding on the stones here as they go. And it came to pass when midday was past, and they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, six o'clock at night. They may have gone as long as 12 hours here, and Elijah hasn't even had his chance yet. And they've gotten nowhere. There sits that bullock and no fire. There was neither voice, nor any answer, nor anyone that regarded them. And Elijah said unto all the people, Come near unto me, and, uh, and time is nearly gone. If there is to be a sacrifice, it will have to be very soon. And Elijah will have no time to say many chants, or to march around the altar, or to cut himself. Elijah said unto the people, Come near unto me. And all the people came near, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And he took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, unto whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be thy name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two measures of seed. And he put the wood in order. And he cut the bullock in pieces and laid him in the, on the wood and said, Fill four barrels with water and pour it on this burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And they did it. And he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran round about the altar and filled the trench with water. And now with this sacrifice... Soaked, saturated, drenched, wood, bullock, stone, and sand. It came to pass that it was time for the offering of the evening sacrifice. And Elijah the prophet came near. I declare to you that that line is explicitly used. We have seen 450 cheap imitations. We have heard all kinds of prayers and all kinds of strange incantations. And now comes this little thin man who has been away for three years. And it describes him in the Word of God as Elijah the prophet. And that's what he is. And he knelt down and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, let it be known this day that thou art God, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done these things 
at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God and that thou hast turned their heart back again. And then the fire of the Lord fell, and it consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water in the trench. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, O God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let it be known this day that Thou art God in Israel, and that I am Thy servant, and that I have done these things at Thy word. Let this people know that Thou art the Lord God, and that Thou hast turned their heart back again. And then the fire of the Lord fell. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, The Lord, He is God. O oh, the Lord, He is God. Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, then follow Him. Or if Baal, follow him. But I only, I, even I only, remain a prophet of the Lord. How long halt ye between two opinions? I think we all need a little fire of the Lord to fall in our lives. I think we do, in fact fall prey to the very kind of idol worship which Joseph describes in Ezekiel 14 and D&C 1, and the very kind of idol worship which has beset the priests of Baal in their groves. And Elijah comes and said, How long will it go on? Will it go on forever and ever and ever? Will not Israel ever, ever cease to follow those false gods? which have attracted and lured and offered their enticement since time began. How long? O oh Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, how long? Well, this weekend, the Lord goes on record one more time about the truth. Are you wondering whether you ought to go on a mission or not? I'll bet you dollars to donut you here this weekend. Do you think you ought to get a year's supply or help your families? I would, I'd, I'd just be willing to bet almost anything that you hear something about it this weekend. You worried about prayer? You worried about charity? Are you uncertain about the Book of Mormon? I'll bet you hear about all of them this weekend. Somewhere, sometime, those testimonies are going to be born because they always have and they always will. Because like Elijah... President Spencer W. Kimball and his colleagues will go before us and declare that they are indeed prophets, seers, and revelators in the only true and living Church on the face of the earth. That says something about the power of a prophet. That is what these young men and women on this side of the hall are about to say to the world. And if we can say it well enough, if we can believe it and, and honor it enough, I believe we'll get a chance to tell them why we know that Jesus is the Christ and what that means in our day in a living church in 1976. I suggested earlier that there are other kinds of conferences. I wish I had time to talk about them. I believe with all my heart that sacrament meeting is a conference made more available once a week than we're able to go to and experience a general conference in six months. You uh, ought to know that President McKay, at least in his lifetime, reiterated to all the Church that it was once again reminded of us that sacrament meeting was the most important weekly priesthood meeting in the Church. And he cites this text from Scripture to so testify. I suggested that Family Home Evening is a conference, both now and when you have your own. I wish I could tell you about uh, the experience that uh, Pat and I had while we were in graduate school which, short of this last 130 days, was the busiest time I've ever had in my life. 
But we made a couple of promises to ourselves there, and that is that we'd date each other without any money and without any time. We'd still date each other. And we also promised that uh, even with two little children, both small enough not to know if we didn't, but with those two little children, we would never miss a family home evening. Someday maybe I can tell you what that meant in our lives. I wish we could take time to talk about what kind of conferences I think you can have with each other, one-on-one. Marvelous, touching, beautiful story told to me just the other day about a girl that I had tried to reach and could not, a girl that her mother had tried to reach and could not, that her bishop had tried to reach and could not, that her stake president had tried to reach and could not. Nobody could reach her except her girlfriend, who took her by the collars and shook her, just shook her, and started to cry and said, Don't you see? Don't you see what you're doing to me? You break my heart. And she sobbed. She just shook. She shook and she shook her friend. Don't you see what you're doing to me? You are breaking my heart. Well, that girl, when nobody else, it appeared on the face of this earth could touch her, is in the church and with her bishop and on the way to repentance in as dramatic and as beautiful and as glowing a way as I have ever seen in my life. And I could not reach her, and her mother could not reach her, and her bishop could not reach her, and a friend reached her, reached her and grabbed her and shook her and said, You're breaking my heart. That's a kind of a conference that's worth having, and I invite you to, to hold it, maybe less dramatically, but to talk about the welfare of your souls and to see that there's no iniquity among you. It might not hurt to read again Moroni 6 sometime when you're alone or together with a few in your apartment. Prayer, perhaps, is the greatest conference of all, and that's a subject for a complete talk, and we'll leave it for that. My concluding comment with an A and a B part. A, I was recently in Vavau, Tonga. It is a little island which is an hour and a half away by plane and 24 hours away by boat in the worst trip that can possibly be made. And if you don't believe that, ask Elder Gordon B. Hinckley, who went there to organize the stake and could not get a plane. And it's a tribute to Elder Hinckley and all of his brethren who do just exactly that, get on a boat for 24 hours and ride it to some little island to organize a stake. When the area conference was announced for Tongatapu, the larger island to the south, one boat was leaving. And the saints came down determined to go to that conference. The boat held 150 people. If you stuffed every body possible into every corner of the building, of the, of the, of the ship, you could possibly get 300 people. 800 Tongans jammed onto that boat and stood up. They stood up for 24 hours without sleep, without food, without drink, without anything, because they knew that a prophet of God was going to be in their islands and they were not going to miss it for anything. Do you want to go to conference that bad? Do you care that the prophet of the Lord is speaking in the neighborhood? Do you care enough to flip on a television set or to come to this building and watch a priesthood meeting? 800 people standing up for 24 hours. And they didn't think anything about it. They said, well, what would you do? The president of the church is here. That's our prophet, and we may not see him again. And they came. The other story coming out of southern Utah, a man who'd been away from the church for half a century came back and took a job as custodian of the chapel, promised the bishop that he'd come to church and stop smoking, but he didn't either. The bishop never hounded him, but he kept asking. He said, you remember the promise you made? The man said, yes, I remember, bishop. The bishop would smile and hug him and walk away, but the man did not come to church and he did not stop smoking. One night in the middle of the chapel while he was working late, he was overcome with the most terrifying, paralyzing fear he has ever expressed or experienced in his life. I heard him, I heard him say this with his own lips, though I do not now know the man's name. He said, I have never been so fearful, so frightened, so petrified in my life. I've been afraid, 
I have been in dangerous, frightening circumstances, but there is nothing in this world with which I can compare or in any way in this world I can describe the experience I had that night. Every creak and crack and dark corner of that chapel terrified me, and I began to cry. And this is a grown man of nearly 70 years. I began to cry, and I ran from the building, and I fled to my home. And I was terrified in my own home, and I could not control my emotions. And I ran from my home and went to a shed behind my house. And for the first time in a half a century, I fell to my knees and I prayed and I said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, save me from whatever this is. And he had a moment there to remember that he'd made some promises to the bishop and that he'd talked about coming to the church and that he'd said he'd be willing to give up smoking. And a lot of life flashed before his eyes. But he was terrified and quaking, trembling, perspiring on his knees in this shed out behind his home. He said, there then came, in the midst of this prayer that I was lisping like a child, there came into my heart the words of a song that I had not heard nor sung for that half century. I think I did not ever know the words, and I surely do not know them now. But I heard them with symphonic accompaniment and angelic choirs. I heard them, music and word, in that shed behind my home that night in the middle of the night. And it's a hymn that you know. And the opening line is, We thank Thee, O God, for a prophet. And he said it went away, and I stopped trembling, and I stopped crying, and I heard the angels sing. And he said, I've never missed a church meeting since that day, and I've never smoked a cigarette, and I've tried to do everything I should have done for all those years. But I want you to know that I did not then, and I probably do not now know, the words to the hymn that I heard sung that night in a shed behind my home with a celestial symphony and an angelic choir. It was indeed a message to a world that's fearful and frightened and desperately in need. We thank thee, O God, for a prophet of whom I testify and who will give his own testimony this weekend. To that I bear witness, and of him I bear witness, and of the church he leads I bear witness, and of the Son of God who leads him I bear witness in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to the Come Follow Me podcast, presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU Speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.